Well, hey, good morning, FBC Wimberley family. My name's Matt Lombardi, and I'm part of the team here at the church. Excited to share with you the first sermon in our new series, Knowing God, Knowing God's Hope. So we're going to be deep diving through the book of 1 Peter over the next 12 weeks. We're going to be looking at these topics that relate to hope, suffering, joy, all the things that come out of our hope in Jesus Christ. I'm pumped to dive into it today. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get right into the scriptures. God, thank you for everyone watching this morning. Thank you for their willingness to get up out of bed or to stay up late or any of the things that they had to overcome in order to hear the word of God this morning. Holy Spirit, empower my words to speak your words, not my own. God, I pray that if anyone's here this morning that would need to know you at a deeper level, would need to repent of anything that's been holding them back, or would need to just, God, take a next step closer to you, that you would give them the courage to do that this morning through you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. When I was in second grade, I had to fill out a letter to my future self. And the whole idea was I was going to talk about my hopes and dreams and desires, and that letter would get mailed to me when I turned 18. Now, I never got that letter, I think because it was pretty unremarkable, but I, I filled out that, I did that exercise. Maybe that's something you've done in the past when you were a kid, or maybe you have grandkids or kids now, and they're doing something like that. It's really common when you're a kid that we like to ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's kind of a weird question, isn't it? Like, let's be honest, that's a loaded question for most adults, and we put that mess on like a six-year-old. We're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? How in the world would they know? They could be a ninja or they could be a chef. They have no idea what they want to be, but yeah, we ask them. So these are some funny responses I found. Some, some kids who, uh, they're my heroes because they wrote these things. They were asked that same question. What do you hope to be when you grow up? Or something, something around that question. Who do you hope to be? What are your hopes for the future? Uh, first kid said this. The question was, what are three things you want to do in the future? He said, get a girlfriend, kiss her, and rule the world. That kid is awesome. I hope my kid is that cool one day. Second kid said this, what do you want to be when you grow up? I am seven. I want to be eight. I can empathize with that. Maybe you're there too. I'm just trying to get to tomorrow, man. No big plans for the future. Just want to get to the next day. And the last one, what do you hope to be when you grow up? I want to sell fruit at a busy intersection. This guy was absolutely the class clown in high school. And you know that guy. I know that guy. Uh, but isn't this how many of us talk about our hopes? Isn't this the way we use the word hope? We don't really mean a true, secure hope. We mean wish. Like, I hope I get a boat one day. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't, right? I hope that one day I'm able to pay off the mortgage and have a lake house somewhere. I hope that one day my kids grow up and aren't little jerks to me. I hope that one day, I hope that one day, I hope that one day, but that's not a secure hope, is it? That's more of a wish than it is a hope. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at what Peter is saying to a church that needs secure hope. It's a church in the region of Asia, which would be modern-day Turkey at the time. These are people Peter knew from his teaching in the book of Acts, that first sermon that was ever preached to the church in Acts chapter 2. Some of the seeds of this church that he's writing to in the book of 1 Peter were there that day. These are some of the original converts to the faith after Jesus' resurrection. And so Peter is writing to them in a time where they're facing immense difficulty. They're facing social pressures, the likes of which most of us will never experience. They're losing their businesses. They're losing their reputation socially for following Jesus. By saying, I'm a Christian, 
They're signing up for suffering. So that's who Peter's writing to as we dive into the text today. So I'm going to read from 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 this morning. So verse 3 starts like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which I love that Peter starts preaching to people who are suffering with worship, right? He immediately goes, blessed be the God and Father. That's what we call a doxology. It's worshipful as Peter starts out. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Last week was Easter, and we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's where Peter actually is going to pick up in this letter in his hope for the people of God. He's going to found all of his argument, all of his encouragement, all of his admonishment to the church in Asia on this idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's the central theme of our sermon today. It's that they had a permanent hope in Jesus Christ. So the question I want you to be thinking of today and throughout the sermon, throughout the series is this. Is your hope in this world permanent or is it passive? Is it something that is secure or is it something that's going to fall away in a few years? And so the people that Peter's writing to in verses 3 through 5 here, they need a secure hope. They're not okay and content with a Jesus who can fix a little bit of stuff. I mean, these are people who are literally losing everything. They're people who Peter is going to go on to call resident aliens, most likely because they've literally left their homeland behind and are now living as aliens and strangers in a land that isn't their original homeland in Turkey there. They're people who aren't from there. And so in this time, if you would have left your homeland, you lost everything. Your inheritance was tied to the land you were born on. And for these people to be strangers, be living where they weren't from, means they had given up everything because of their suffering. They had been forced into a situation where the mess of life was right on their doorstep. And they didn't need a hope that was flimsy. They needed a permanent hope that could deal with the mess of their life and their situation. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you're in a situation where you need a savior and a Jesus who can deal with the mess of your life. You don't need hope that says, yeah, I can fix it for a little while. You don't need a magic bullet. You need something eternal. And that's what Jesus offers us is a permanent hope that can hold up in our mess. We, as people who follow Jesus, are not perfect. We're sinners who still live in the mess of this world. And when we approach Jesus and we come to him in his resurrection power, we're bringing all of our mess with us. Jesus doesn't expect us to clean ourselves up before we come to him. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you're a person who's, who's not a mess right now, but who thinks that by all their religious actions, they're able to clean themselves up enough and, okay, Jesus loves me because I've, I've done the right things because I don't, I don't do the things that those other people do. Right? I'm in Bible study three days a week, right? Like, I pray at 5 a.m. when I wake up. So I'm good, Jesus. We're, we're, we're good here. You don't have to worry about my sins. You can go worry about someone else's sins. That's not the message of Jesus. That's not the kind of hope that we need. We need hope that's in the mess 
with us right where we are, a Jesus who comes from heaven to earth to be with us in our mess. Uh, a few years ago, when I had just graduated from seminary, I had this amazing opportunity to serve uh, students in boarding schools and day schools up in New England. I mean, these were kids who had everything financially, who had every opportunity. They were on the fast track to Ivy League schools. And every year, we would go to a camp, summer camp, just like it's coming up. And at that summer camp, there was this fascinating thing that they did. I've never seen any other ministry do this. They had a smoking section for high schoolers. Now, I know some of you right now are already freaking out. You're like, sinners, sinners, why would you do that? What a terrible ministry. But here's the point. They were trying to reach people far from Jesus. They were trying to reach kids who had zero interest in faith at all. They understood that some of these kids who were 18 smoked cigarettes because they thought it was cool. It was rebellious. They were away from mom and dad at these boarding schools. They were looking for something to ease the stress, but also just something to be rebellious. They didn't want someone's addiction to cigarettes to stop them from encountering Jesus. They understood that Jesus meets us in our mess. He doesn't expect us to clean ourselves up before we get to him. That ministry understood that a hope that's secure and permanent is a hope that can meet us in the mess. Would we say that we're a church that can tolerate that? Are we a church that can deal with people and understand that they're going to come to us messy and broken and that's okay? Because, yeah, they may be smoking cigarettes on the front porch, but they were on meth three weeks ago. So we'll take cigarettes all day, right? That's, that's a church that we desire to be. We want to be a place that's open to broken people showing up where they are and encountering a transformational Jesus. Jesus provides us a hope, a permanent hope that's with us in the mess. Peter's going to go on in verse 6 and say this to this church. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Wow. These were people who were suffering. The mess of their life had mounted to a point that they're just a few years from a empire-wide persecution that would see them murdered in mass. These are people who are suffering real trials and tribulations. And so for many of us today, we'll never know suffering like that. I'm going to be honest with you. We as American Christians or as Western Christians do not suffer the way that the vast majority of Christians have suffered throughout church history. We're the very small minority who has freedom of religion, and that's a beautiful thing, but we can't really identify with the suffering these people are going through. Because you see, Peter's writing people who are suffering for Jesus, not just suffering because of sin in their life or because they live in a broken world. See, that's very different than suffering because you're choosing to follow Jesus. You and I suffer all the time, but most of our suffering is just because of sin. Maybe sin that we've done, dumb things that we've done, or maybe because of sin of another person. But that's not suffering for following Jesus. That's just suffering because we live in a sinful world. And I'm not diminishing that. That's difficult. But that's not suffering persecution because you say, I'm a Christian, and then someone knocks on your door and says, okay, you're going to prison now because you said you're a Christian. These people were losing the social status to where they had no influence. And I'm going to say this, and this is not a political statement, 
But a loss of political power is not the same thing as persecution. That's what we've experienced the past few years in the United States, is a loss of political power as Christians. That is not persecution. That's just a loss of preference. And so let's not compare ourselves to what they're going through. What instead we should do is look to, okay, what kind of suffering do we experience in the West? What kind of suffering are we preparing ourselves for daily or going through daily? And to me, when I look at this, I think the suffering that most of us go through is a suffering that Christ calls us to in self-denial. It's giving up of our needs and our wants and our desires because we know that it's better to suffer with Jesus than to be successful without him. It's better to not sin than it is to have to suffer. We would rather suffer to be faithful to what God's called us to, to live out the values of being a new creation in Christ, to be in tension with our culture. We'd rather suffer that self-denial than we would sin and be part of the world. That's what suffering looks like for us. And, and the central theme of a lot of the book of First Peter that we're going to dive into is going to be this one. Permanent hope provides joy in our suffering. If you have a hope that's passing, the joy that you experience is non-existent. You, you can't be joyful if you think that this whole thing just ends in a fade to black. Eternal hope that's permanent provides us joy in our suffering. There was a boxing match in 1910. It was called the Fight of the Century, and it pitted an ascending star, Jack Johnson, against the reigning kind of legendary boxer of his time, Jim Jeffries. And it'd be held on July 4th, 1910 in Reno, Nevada, in front of 65,000 people, open air. It was 110 degrees outside, 65,000 people packing in onto the stadium. It was a boxing spectacle like had never been seen before. It was called the fight of the century. And it had a, a kind of an undertone that wasn't just a normal fight. You see, Jack Johnson was black. He was flamboyant. He was confident. He was Kanye West a hundred years before Kanye West. He was Muhammad Ali half a century before Muhammad Ali. He was a cultural icon. And he was a black man who had gotten fame and fortune and notoriety and he was in the press. And to be honest, a huge portion of our country hated him for it. And so boxing promoters decided they would bring Jim Jeffries out of retirement to fight Jack Johnson. Jim Jeffries was dubbed by the media the Great White Hope. And so this fight takes place on J July 4th, and it's oppressively hot, and it's oppressively difficult, and it's such a difficult circumstance, and Jack Johnson in the first few rounds is going to get beat and thrown around, and he's going to get a bloody lip, and it's gory, and it's messy, but the entire time through it, he smiles, he laughs. He even jokes around. Despite the fact that he knows the guy fighting him hates him and everything he stands for, despite the fact that he knows most of the country is behind the other guy, hates him, hates who he is as a person and everything he stands for. And yet he smiles and laughs throughout as he gets punched and kicked around. And ultimately, after 15 rounds, he comes out victorious. But he's smiling the whole way through. Why is he smiling? He's smiling because he knows he's going to win. He's smiling because he knows he's in better shape. He knows he's, he's 
practiced more. He knows he spent more time sparring with his partners. He knows he's going to win. Despite getting punched, despite getting beat down, he knows the outcome of the story. And for you and me, it's the same thing. When we suffer self-denial, when we have to give up things that we want or what we need for the good of our souls, we can take joy in that. We can actually be excited and smile. It doesn't mean we enjoy the, the bad situations, but it means because we look to Jesus and our eternal hope, we know what the end result will be. We know where the victory is coming. Permanent hope provides us joy in our suffering. So Peter goes on. In verses 9 through 12. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter is talking to a people here who would be familiar with Jewish history, with the Old Testament. And so he's telling them essentially, for thousands of years, God's prophets and God's people have been looking to this eternal hope. They were searching for it. The prophet Isaiah would write about a suffering servant that was to come, a Messiah that would be beat and bloodied for the sins of the people. This is part of God's bigger plan, is what Peter's telling the people. Your suffering, your joy, your hope is all the culmination of what God's been doing since beginning of time until future time when it all comes to an end. And so for these people, this is going to resonate with them. Spoiler alert for the whole series for you, right? <laughs> the series is called Knowing God, the Hope of God. So I guess the question that many of you have is, what's the hope of God? The hope of God is Jesus. Spoiler, right? Like, that's the Sunday school answer we all know, but it actually works in this case. The hope of God is Jesus Christ in the flesh who was predestined from before creation to go to eternal glory. That's the hope of God. That's how we get through suffering. That's how we deal with the mess of life. That's the permanent we hope, hope that we have is in Jesus. In the Old Testament, we see, like, just, just think about this. In the Old Testament, we see this. Adam falls into temptation. Christ comes to be tempted by Satan, and he succeeds, and he overcomes. It's God's plan. We see Abraham, who leads his son to the slaughter to be the sacrifice for sin. And Jesus comes to be slaughtered as the son sacrificed for our sin. Moses brought the law down from the presence of God. Jesus comes from heaven, from the presence of God, to fulfill the law and to be the law incarnate. On and on we could go through the entire Old Testament to show the way that God has been planning since the beginning of time that Jesus Christ would be our fulfillment and our hope. So what does this mean for us, right? What, what does this mean for us that our hope is part of a bigger plan? I mean, like we talked about earlier, most of us live as if we're the center of the universe. Our culture is obsessed with the self, with us being the central arbiter of truth, right? Everything runs through our filter in ways that are subconscious that we can't even fathom. And so to live following Jesus is to ask yourself this question. 
what's it costing you to follow him? What does it cost you to not live for yourself? What, did it, what does it cost you to be part of his bigger plan for your life? I mean, so many things that we pour our time into, whether that's our legacy or our kids or a cause, those are all great things. But at the end of the day, if you pour yourself into a cause or a legacy or uh, some institution, the most you can hope for is a nice plaque on a wall. In two generations, everyone's going to forget you. They'll all be dead. Your kids, they're great. But at the end of the day, in two or three generations, those great-grandkids don't know who you were. You're just maybe a footnote in a book somewhere. If you're living for something that's passing and not permanent, your hope is not eternal. Live for things that connect you to the mission of God, to that permanent hope, not the passing hope of the world. Live on mission to be part of God's bigger story, his bigger plan. Bring redemption into the tiny moments of your life. That is what being part of God's bigger plan looks like. It really is. It's being part of the mundane little day-to-day -day things. It doesn't mean moving to Calcutta like Mother Teresa. It means being intentional in the day-to-day -to, -day to bring restoration and redemption to every interaction you have. Maybe that means for you it's, it's volunteering with one of our outreach partners on a weekly basis and just saying, hey, I'm going to give up my time because that's the most valuable resource most of us have. I'm going to give up my time for a few hours. Or maybe it's serving in the kids' ministry and saying, hey, I'm going to sign up for VBS because I believe it matters that kids hear the good news of Jesus. Yeah, it's not fun wiping snotty nose. It's not fun getting to go run around with kids who are going to peg you with balls. But guess what? You get to be like Jesus and be part of his bigger plan by taking part in things like this. It's the little details of every day done with intentionality to see God's eternal plan of hope that make us more like Christ and allow us to live a life filled with a permanent hope. So that's the question this morning. Is your hope passing or is your hope permanent? Is your life marked by a joy and suffering? Is it marked by you being part of God's eternal plan? Is it marked by you suffering in a way that says, okay, God, you get the glory, not me. Is it something where you're willing to involve yourselves in the mess of others or to let God come into your mess? Pray with me. God, I pray for the hearts and the souls of every person listening this morning, that they would be set ablaze by you, God, that they would turn their eyes to a hope that is permanent, that is fixed, that is secure in Jesus. God, I pray for everyone watching online, no matter where they are, whether they're in the United States, whether they're across the world, whether they're in Texas, whether they're in Florida, whether they're in Canada, wherever they are, God. God, would you speak to them right where they are that they can have a holy, sacred moment with you right now. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you next week.